0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well. A gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Matthew 1, 18-25. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, Jesus so this is the word of God for the people of God today can I pray father oh thank you for your word we thank you for the privilege that we have to gather here uh, this evening to celebrate the birth of our savior into this world the privilege that we have to hear the voices of children in our gathering and uh, and to hear your word read and sung And now proclaimed. Pray, Father, that Your Spirit would be present, powerfully present. You would turn our hearts to You. Trust You to do this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, "Amen." You may be seated. So, this passage of scripture that I just read uh, is—it's Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus, right? It's—it's really, I think, the perfect Christmas passage, perfect Christmas Eve passage, specifically. Because it clearly outlines um, some really important things about Jesus' first advent or his coming to this earth, right? Like Matthew wants to describe a few things to us. Think about what he describes. He describes the immaculate conception. Big words. We'll get there in a minute, right? He, uh, he describes this really kind of a quiet divorce plan that Joseph puts together. When he hears that Mary's pregnant. He describes this, this angelic appearance that really actually alters Joseph's plans. He describes the fact that Jesus will save his people from their sins, right? Um, he describes this miracle of the virgin, Mary, giving birth to her son, who would be called Emmanuel. Um, and then you have... This description kind of all throughout of this kind of this this picture, this overwhelming picture of Joseph's obedience to God as he becomes Jesus' earthly father, really his stepfather, you might say. And when I think about everything that Matthew describes here in this text, the immaculate conception, the angelic appearance, the virgin birth of our Savior, the the 180 degree turn that, uh, that Joseph does in his plans. When I think about those things, all I can think about is that this story is an absolute miracle in every way. It's not like just one small miracle, it's like miracle upon miracle upon miracle upon miracle. They're compounded. Like think about this, Uh, virgins don't get pregnant, okay? Like that's just pretty much a fact. Virgins don't get pregnant, unless there's some kind of human participation, right, okay? Angels don't show up and speak to humans very often. Um I've never had that encounter. I don't know many that have, if any. Never been a god. Never been a god in all of history who retained 100% of his godly DNA while taking on 100% human DNA at the same time other than Jesus. It's a miracle. And, and as, you, as you think about the story, you think about Joseph's divorce plans, right? Um, it might seem like a very subtle uh, point uh, in the story. Um, but nevertheless, it's still a redirection and an upending of Joseph's divorce plans. And that might seem minor. Um, but if you think about this, you think about Joseph's obedience in this story to god i really think it is an absolute miracle i mean if we all just stopped and thought for a moment about how hard it is to obey god when he commands us to do something if you think about how hard it is to change period right even down to something as minuscule or small as changing one's diet we know change is hard at times nearly impossible This kind of change, this 180-degree turn in this story, I think is miraculous. So I think the whole story, in in all of its glory, really is uh, a miracle in every way possible. I I want to help us to kind of sit in this thought that this really is a massive, compounded miracle in this passage. Think about the Immaculate Conception for a moment in verse 18. You think about this word immaculate. It's not a word that we use in our English language very often, right? Um, you might look at your car after you've washed it, and you might say, man, it's immaculate. Or you may look at your living room floor after you vacuumed, You might say, it's kind of immaculate. Or you might look at your child and say, don't stop vacuuming that floor until it's immaculate. Like, we don't use the word very often. These are ways you might use the word, though, right? Immaculate simply means spotless or pure. And so when you think about this immaculate conception, Mary, she conceives Jesus in her womb. Her her spotless, her, her pure virgin conception, which, so that I make sure I say this, in no way points to her perfection. What it does point to is it points to the fact that she was impregnated by the Holy Spirit without any other human intervention, like, this is a miracle, right? And, and it actually, if you think about it, stands in stark contrast to all of the people that are mentioned in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus back in, um, back in previous verses. Like, all the people that are listed in Jesus' family tree. Criminals, vagabonds, adulterers, prostitutes, thieves, liars, right? That's what we have in Jesus' family tree. And then here's Mary, while not perfect, conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit is perfect. The reality is that the, the very people that Jesus came to ransom and redeem are those of us, all of us in this room and others, right? Very much like that family tree. And yet Mary too would be ransomed and redeemed as a sinful person. But in this immaculate conception, it's perfection. This Immaculate Conception, what it reminds us of, what it teaches us, is that Jesus' perfection is part of the miracle of salvation. Jesus could not be Savior of sinners. He could not be the substitute for sin, for the penalty of sin, had he not been perfect. Think, too, about the angelic appearance when when the angel comes to Joseph. I mean, put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a minute. Can you imagine being Joseph and hearing that your fiancé is pregnant, right? Even though you've never been intimate with her, but she's pregnant. So I really, when I read the story, I can't blame Joseph for wanting to divorce Mary. I can't blame him for having those thoughts. But then I also really admire Joseph in this story because the way that he wants to divorce Mary is very private and very quiet so that there's no shame brought upon her. Like, think about that. Think about the integrity and and the justice of this man to want to do things that way. How many relationships do you know of right now that would have ended very publicly and actually very abruptly over those kinds of circumstances? The reality, I believe, is only a miracle could save Joseph and Mary's marriage at this point. This is where the miracle of this angelic appearance changes the course of history as I think it would have been had God not intervened. Do you think about your own story? If you know Jesus, the moment that you heard from God and began to follow Jesus is an absolute miracle. Your life was radically altered from that point forward because God reached down and intervened in your life. And in this moment, when the angel appears to Joseph, it's as though God is intervening. This, this angelic appearance, along with this explanation of Mary's pregnancy, you think about this this way, it kind of seems to be the only logical way to explain something so illogical or something so miraculous as Mary's immaculate conception. Like, only an angel could have come to Joseph and changed the course of what was about to happen. It took this miraculous intervention of this angelic appearance to explain the nature of Mary's conception. It took the miracle of an angelic appearance to sway the decision of Joseph, who was only a finite man and really was only a step away from divorcing his fiance. Like, thought. Feel the awe of that, the miraculous nature of what's happening. Think, too, about the virgin birth of Jesus, right? Think about the virgin birth of Jesus. See, the tail end of the angel's explanation to Joseph, it really details the fact that Jesus will be our Emmanuel. Love this name. Jesus will be our Emmanuel. He will save his people from their sins, The text tells us that Emmanuel simply means God with us. What we learn when we think about how God is with us is we learn that God is not against us. He's not our enemy. Though we, maybe in our sin and rebellion, have made ourselves to be His enemy. He's for us. He's with us in Christ. In the person of Jesus Christ, what we have is a Savior We have a Savior, God, who comes to be with us as He offers Himself to us as our Savior. Why? So that our sins may be forgiven. And when you think about Isaiah 7.14, that's the previous prophecy that is mentioned about the coming Emmanuel. In that prophecy, what we have is a God who, again, is with us and for us instead of being a God who is far away from us and against us. When you think about this truth that Jesus came to save us from our sin, he didn't come to save us from our poverty. He didn't come to save us from our mental illnesses or our physical sicknesses or from our broken relationships or any other effects of sin, as horrible as they may be. Jesus actually came to save us from the presence And the power and the penalty of our sin. How? Through his sinless life. Through his substitutionary death at the cross of Calvary. Through his victorious resurrection from the tomb. You see, the virgin birth of Jesus, our Emmanuel, um, this is the miracle of the truth that God came in the person of Jesus Christ. 100% perfectly God. God. 100% perfectly human to be with us and for us. This is the kind of miracle, again, that radically alters the course of human life for all of eternity. And who better to illustrate that kind of change, that kind of transformation, so to speak, than a human named Joseph. You think, lastly, about this 180 degree turn that Joseph does in the text. And again, I think at first glance, I think we kind of read past it. I think we kind of miss it. But you got to think about the weight of that decision and the relational, like, just messiness that was going on in this moment. I think it's a perfect illustration of what happens when God intervenes in the birth of his son. Right? Joseph was about to put Mary away in a private divorce. He was about ready to say, I want nothing left to do with you. I want nothing else to do with you. Is that not the feeling that each of us gets when we sin? That's what God's going to do to us. I don't want anything to do with you. You're rotten, you're dirty, you're filthy, you're broken, you're worthless. In this whole story, you just see God doing his work. It's the work of the Father actually shining through this whole text. Joseph was ready to wash his hands of Mary. I would assume that his mind was full of questions about the integrity and about the purity of his fiance, right? As she explains to him that she's she's pregnant, but but I haven't been unfaithful to you, I haven't been with anybody. I can imagine the conversation. If you're a fly on the wall. I can't blame him for wanting to get out of that relationship. But then Joseph has that encounter with an angel. The angel explains the miracle of that conception by the Holy Spirit. He explains this impending virgin birth that's about to happen. And Joseph completely changes the course of his plans in favor of what I would call an ages-old plan from eternity past. This is a plan and as I said even this last Sunday, had been quietly being played out since the Garden of Eden in Genesis. This is where we started reading tonight, was in Genesis. Ever since then, this quiet plan was being played out. And it was a plan to bring the Savior into the world to crush the serpent's head. To crush our enemy, Satan, sin, and death. I believe... As I studied this text and as I thought and prayed my way through, I really believe that Joseph, as the soon-to-be father of the Savior of the world, along with Mary, I believe they had a massive intimate experience with God. I can't wait to sit in heaven and just ask them, what was this like? What did you treasure up in your heart that I don't know about? Joseph, I definitely, I believe in this passage, has one of the most intimate experiences of God as he becomes the earthly father of our Savior. And then out of that intimate experience with God, what does Joseph do? He changes course, right? And he obediently becomes Jesus' earthly stepfather. What we see in Joseph, I think, is a picture of wholehearted obedience and devotion to purity, even at the end of the text when it says that he knew her, he took her to be his wife, but did not know her intimately until after Jesus is born. That's a picture of commitment and obedience and worship. The only thing that I think will motivate that kind of true, wholehearted obedience to the commands of God, I think is an actual encounter with the living God. I'm not not talking about just some emotional experience because you sang songs or because a preacher cried or because a great story was shared, but an actual life on life encounter with the living God, the creator of the universe, the savior of sinners like you and I, an intimate encounter where you hear him speak to you and you speak to him. I think that radically alters the course of life. That's the only way I believe that an imperfect person can ever make a 180 degree life changing turn like this that we see. It's to have that encounter with a God who is for us and with us. So I think, in conclusion, I think that this is the real miracle of Christmas. We live in a day and age where Christmas has become a massive money-making enterprise. Not only in stores around us, but in many churches, especially across the United States. And the reality is, I think the real miracle is that we can know the God who came to be with us and for us in the person and the work of Jesus. It's it's through the miracle of the incarnation. That's the big theological word. It's through the miracle of the incarnation where God becomes a man while not ceasing to be God. It's through that miracle that each of us has the opportunity to look to a bloody cross. To to, to think about and contemplate the victory of an empty tomb. To be... um, assured and reassured and given the hope of eternity in perfection in heaven. No more tears, no more crying, no more, no more mourning, no more sin. That's the only way that I think that we can latch on to those things is knowing that God came to be with us because He is for us. And when all hell breaks loose in this world that we live in, we can hang on to that truth, that God came in the form of a man named Jesus. And we get to encounter God by the power of His Spirit every time we look to the Christmas story. And in the Christmas story, we are reminded once again that God came to be with us because He is for us. That's my prayer today, is that you and I would encounter the living God who came in the flesh in this season, in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? Father, thank you. Pray, God, that you would inhabit this space as we wrap up our time together. Thank you so much for coming and being God with us. Thank you for being for us. Ask that you would be glorified and honored and lifted high as we close our time. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from the well